Good evening, everyone, and welcome to this Forum for Philosophy event on Moritz Schlick. The Vienna Circle is one of the most recognisable brands in the history of philosophy, and some of the figures on the margins of that circle, like Ludwig Wittgenstein, Karl Popper, Frank Ramsey, are some of the biggest names in 20th century philosophy. And yet, the person right at the middle of the Vienna Circle, its informal leader, Moritz Schlick, is much less well known. So we thought it would be appropriate to choose Schlick as the focal point for this event. We'll talk about Schlick's own life and work, but we'll also then broaden out to think about the circle of which he was a part and the broader legacy of that circle on the rest of philosophy. And it's fantastic to be joined by three top experts who are the best people to talk about uh, this chapter in the history of philosophy. They are David Edmonds, author of a wonderful recent book on the Vienna Circle. Cheryl Misak, author of a wonderful recent biography of Frank Ramsey. And Maria Carla Galavotti, author of a wonderful book on the Vienna Circle and Frank Ramsey. To give you a sense of the format for this event, we'll talk among the panel about Schlick's life and work and milieu and about the legacy of the Vienna Circle. And then towards the end, we'll take your questions as well. And it would be fantastic to hear your questions at any point during the event via the Q&A box in the, uh, the Zoom webinar platform. Please feel free to type your question at any time, but we'll get to them towards the end. So let's start with you, David. You recently published this book, The Murder of Professor Schlick. Now, biographers like you have to be very selective about their subjects. Now, these people have to be worth dedicating years of your life to. Why did you choose Schlick as the person to dedicate all this time to? Well, I wanted to tell the story of the Vienna Circle. I'd been interested in the circle for the last 20 years, I guess, ever since co-writing Wittgenstein's uh, poker um, about Wittgenstein and Popper and a famous row they had in Cambridge, which was extremely fierce. And we came to the conclusion that part of the explanation for why it was so fierce was Vienna. And so we became very interested in the circle then, and in particular, both Wittgenstein's and Popper's relationship to the circle. So I wanted to tell the story of the circle. It's a difficult sell from uh, the outside. It looks like a difficult sell. Here are a bunch of rather abstract technical philosophers. Um, but, um, you know, the truth is, there is a very good story at the heart of it. There's a murder and slick meets a very nasty end in 1936. And so that gave me a narrative hook to tell the story. But he's actually much more interesting than people give him credit for. You know, he's a fascinating figure, a very, very important figure. Um, you know, he's, um, he's important partly for what he's not, actually. He's not Austrian, like most of the Vienna Circle. Um, he's um, not Jewish, like many of the Vienna Circle. And he's not a socialist, like all the members of the Vienna Circle. 
Um, but he's very important to them. He was, the, as you said, he was the informal head of it. He was very important for his role in bringing Wittgenstein into the circle. He was very important because he was basically a physicist and he was very interested in Einsteinian physics and had a close relationship with Einstein. So for all those reasons, he's very important and interesting. So what, um, what happened to him? You, the focal point of your book is Schlick's death. Tell us what happened. Well, he leaves his rather posh apartment. He's a, quite a wealthy man in uh, Vienna uh, to do a to take the tram uh, down to the lecture hall at the University of Vienna. He leaves at about eight o'clock. The lecture is at about nine fifteen. He arrives in uh, at the university, and there waiting for him is a former student called Nilbuk. Hans Nelbuck, who is a schizophrenic, really, and has been stalking Slick for years. And Slick has had bodyguards because he's been so worried about this person. Uh, Nelbuck has been institutionalized a couple of times. Um, and Slick can't get everybody to take it as seriously as he thinks they ought. And um, uh, Nelbuck is there waiting for him with a gun shoots him four times, shouting, now, now you damn bastard, there you have it. And he, you know, he's literally left holding a smoking gun when the police arrive. Wow, so, you, so your book tells the story of you know, before and after, you know, the, the events that led up to that and its consequences. I mean, I suppose let's go back to the beginning then. I mean... What was the Vienna Circle? What was Schlick's role in bringing it all together? Well, Schlick arrives in Vienna in 1922. Um, Hahn, another member of the circle, is instrumental in bringing him to Vienna. And Hahn has got empiricist instincts and wants an ally. And then in 1924, an informal group began, begins to meet. Uh, they first meet in coffee houses and then it's formalized and they meet at the university. And Slick is the leader. Slick basically decides who's invited, who's not invited. That becomes important later because Popper would love to be a member of the Vienna Circle and Slick precludes him, uh, excludes him. Um, and they begin each meeting by uh, reading through some letters they might have got from all sorts of people like Bertrand Russell uh, and others. And then they have a discussion which might be about probability, might be about induction, might be about verification. And this goes on all the way basically till 1934 when the fascists arrive. And then it stumbles on until Slick's murder. And then Weissman, Friedrich Weissman, who's another member of the circle, tries to keep it going until the Anschluss, when by which stage they pretty much all fled. So was Schlick targeted because of his role in the Vienna Circle? It sounds like from, the, from your version of events, it, it really wasn't that. Well, he probably wasn't. He was probably targeted because his murderer suspected that he was having an affair with a young female student who Nelbuck himself had his eyes on. So it was probably very personal. But afterwards, Nelbuck claimed it was a political assassination. And what's most interesting about the murder 
is how the newspapers um, uh, cover it. So some of the newspapers are quite sympathetic, but two or three of the newspapers describe it as a justified murder, that logical positivism was Jewish philosophy, and they then agitate after Nelbuk is found guilty, and there was no other possible verdict, given that he was caught red-handed, they agitate to have him released, which indeed he is quite early, shortly after World War II begins. So it was a murder that was probably committed for very personal reasons, but then it was interpreted as a political killing. Some of the newspapers described Slick as, as a Jewish philosopher, which he wasn't, um, but they condemn logical positivism for being a subversive philosophy and so justify Nelbuk's action. So your version of events is one on which Schlick is not actually targeted for anti-Semitic reasons, but then the press pounce on this and offer anti-Semitic justifications for why he was targeted. Yeah, not just anti-Semitic justifications. They loathe logical empiricism for various reasons. Mm. I mentioned that most of the members were socialists, but really they loathed it because logical empiricism was anti-metaphysics and the fascists and the Nazis were pro-metaphysics. <clears throat> logical empiricism was anti-romanticism. Logic, logical empiricism was anti-ideas mm -hmm. such as the folk, the idea that there was a group of people, the German people, who were something over and above the set of individuals that made up Germany. So logical empiricism was anti-religion, anti-theology of all kinds. Um, there were lots of reasons why a um, Catholic Austria and a uh, fascist and a German Nazi party would have to dislike the logical empiricists. Mm. So even though, as far as I know, Nazism itself was sort of anti-religious in a, in a sense, the fact that the logical positivists were strongly anti, sort of anti-spiritual, anti metaphysics set them in opposition to Nazism. Yes, yes. And, but, and, and, and Austria was a very Catholic country, of course. So uh, the fact that the logical empirical movement was a secular movement meant that it, that it was not fertile ground in Austria generally. In, Vienna was a, a completely sort of different case and, and was uh, sui generis. I mean, there, 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 Vienna was surrounded by um, these very conservative Catholic hinterlands, and Vienna had been through a socialist period, and there was you know, a big liberal intelligentsia, there was a socialist movement. But beyond Vienna, um, logical empiricism was, um, insofar as it was known at all, was a movement that was not at all conducive to the Austrian population. I'd like to bring Cheryl in on this, I think. Cheryl, what do you think united the Vienna Circle intellectually? I think what united them uh, was an idea that wasn't local to Vienna or to Berlin. I think it was an idea whose time it had come because you see manifestations of it in England and in America at around the same time. So the, the Vienna Circle, uh, just in a nutshell, uh, had a view that, that every meaningful 
statement you could utter or write had to be verifiable by observation. It had to be scientific. And, and here's where you get the anti-religion, anti-metaphysics, indeed kind of anti-philosophy, right? Because philosophy tends to be abstract and not something that you could nail down to the physical world. And, you, and one saw Russell, uh, especially in England, uh, in the you know 1915-ish, uh, having this kind of thought, he called his position logical atomism. One found the idea in American pragmatism, you know, from the late 1800s, and and then lo and behold, you also find it uh, cropping up completely independently in in Vienna. The, the early Wittgenstein had it. So this 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 big idea that he all meaningful thought and expression should be a, about the world and verifiable was was the unifying theme. Mm. And that philosophy is then recast, I suppose, as a discipline that is about the logical analysis of language and, and mathematics to try and break these break these complex structures down into their comp- individually verifiable components. Yeah, so on on the most co- well, this was the aim of all of uh, these movements was to, to have philosophy be logical, mathematical, technical, scientific. But they all had a problem with what to do with those very arguments that they had made about this is how philosophy should be. It should be scientific because all of those arguments were. That, that was all philosophy. So Wittgenstein famously said in his 1922 Tractatus Logico Philosophicus, which presented this locked in, locked down scientific picture of the world, that once you use his philosophical propositions to find out that philosophy was nonsense, then you use those propositions like a ladder. You climbed up on the ladder and then you kick the ladder out from under you never to utter another word of philosophy again. So that's one That's one uh, approach. Yeah. It's a great metaphor, isn't it? Yeah. It's a great metaphor. But but they all had, a, certainly the, the Vienna Circle, Wittgenstein, um, they had a problem with telling us, you know, just how they managed to utter all these philosophical statements to get to their Mm. position about philosophy, but also they had a problem with ethics and a lot of science turned out not to be verifiable. They had a lot of problems. Yes, I love that idea of, you know, an ambitious unifying program for philosophy. Of course, no such program has ever really worked, but it's one of the great visions of what the discipline can be about. I'd like to also bring in Maria Carla on this this question of what what you think united the Vienna Circle intellectually and what set them apart. Well, uh, certainly the analytical approach that was already mentioned, the idea that uh, um, all uh, knowledge and in particular scientific knowledge would have to be rooted in experience. Uh, so the, the empirical approach and um, also this uh, uh, the, the program of the unity of science that you just mentioned uh, that um, gave rise to a 
big program, namely the, the, the project of the Encyclopedia of the Unified Science that uh, went on until uh, the 60s. Um, and which uh, I think uh, um, included at least two different uh, uh, components, namely they thought that uh, uh, the unity of science would be um, realized uh, on the level of language, namely that there could be a common language for all scientific disciplines and also um, as regards to methodology. So they, they believed in uh, be, to be able to describe to uh, a scientific, what scientific method is, what uh, uh, an effective uh, and useful method, methodology for science is, and this could be uh, a unifying trace for all scientific disciplines. Now, of these two components, uh, I believe that the first one is completely obsolete. Uh, the second one uh, is... Uh, which, which one is completely obsolete, sorry? Uh, the idea of uh, uh, being able to specify a unified language for all scientific yeah. disciplines. Uh, the, the, the methodological part is maybe half obsolete. But maybe we can come back to this. Yes, uh, but we'll come back to you know what, how we should think about these ideas today. Certainly, I whatever you think of them, you have to love the boldness, the, the boldness of this idea of systematizing all human knowledge in a common language. I mean, would, it, it, if which, in which every sentence is verifiable. Be wonderful if it were possible. Um, but David, I want to, to come back to you. You mentioned all of, you said not quite all of them were socialists. And in fact, Schlick was an exception. How do you think their politics interacted with these grand intellectual aims? Well, there's an important aspect to Slick's biography here. In 1929, Slick is offered a job in Bonn in Germany, and he's very seriously considering it. And members of the circle ask him to reconsider, and he does and he decides to stay in Vienna. He thinks that the circle has unfinished business. And to thank him, the circle comes up with what they call a manifesto of what the Vienna circle stands for. And it's a bit like um, being given a gift for Christmas. They hand it to Slick and he really doesn't like it at all. And one of the things to come back to your question that he doesn't like about it, there are a couple of things he doesn't like it, about it. The first thing is, it is not modest. Okay, it's incredibly ambitious and bold in its claims and allows of no doubt. And Slick is a modest man and he doesn't like the terms in which the manifesto is expressed. But the second aspect that he really doesn't like about the manifesto is that it's quite political, that it ties up the circle's ambition, which has been described by Chelan Maria Carla, to um, prescribe 
what the nature of philosophy is and to call um, everything that isn't analytic basically nonsense, nonsense unless it can be verified. Um, he describes, uh, 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 they describe their project in political terms and they think that they can use this empirical element of the circle's thinking to improve society. Um, and the key person here is Otto Neurath, who's also Slick's key opponent in the circle. So the, the main tension in the circle is between Slick and Otto Neurath. Neurath is half a Marxist and half a Benthamite, if you can believe that. Um, he's a Marximite or something. Uh, uh, and he thinks that... Um, uh, that society should be remodeled basically on utilitarian terms and that you can use the empirical sciences and you can use um, the skills of the technocratic class to build better houses, to make people more literate and so on. Slick really doesn't like that political program. Slick wants to remain out of politics. As you mentioned, Slick is a conservative with a small c uh, he's certainly not a Marxist or a utilitarian Marxist. Um, so he is very much opposed to this political project, which some of the others think is part and parcel of what logical empiricism is all about. Hmm. So Neurath is the, is the great sort of champion of the idea that the Vienna Circle should have a political mission. Correct. And Schlick Correct. says, no, no, that's not what we're about. I mean, what, what happens after Schlick's death then? I mean, does Neurath win? Well, Neurath has already had to escape. Um, he's so political that he's, he basically has to escape in, in 1934. He is both Jewish and a Marxist. And when the fascists arrive, being a Jewish Marxist is not a good combination of, of attributes to possess. So he escapes very quickly. He goes to Holland and then... He escapes from Holland when the Nazis invade Holland by the skin of his teeth, and he arrives in, in Britain in 1940. Um, so There's is, something in the book about he, he literally travels on a raft or a boat correct, or something. Correct, correct, correct. So he waits till the, the Nazis invade, and he goes down to the dock. He's in the, the Hague, I think, and he basically jumps on a... a, 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 a a small boat and comes across to the UK. Um, but um, when the Austro-fascists take over, so there, there, there's a there's a two-stage process in Austria. The Austro-fascists take over in 34, and then the Nazis move in in 38. So you've got this period when it's Austro-fascist, not Nazi, and the Austro-fascists and the Nazis are not allies. In fact, the Austro-fascists want to keep the Nazis out. Um, but there's a period when the Austro-fascists are in charge, and, um, well, maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves, but they, they close down the circle, and they say the circle is political, and Slick tries to argue with them and says, no, 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 no. we're nothing to do with politics. We're purely a philosoph mm. philosophical meeting group, and um, it may be the case that a few individuals like Neurat are political, but that is nothing to do with the logical empirical movement. So in that milieu of 1930s Vienna, it's a defence strategy to be able to say this is a purely intellectual group. We don't do politics. Yes, yeah, a failed defence strategy. It didn't work. 
Um, and it, it wasn't merely a strategy because, as I say, in Slick's case, he genuine, uh, genuinely was a, a, a conservative with a small c. So it was, it was not merely a strategy. But, but because of the publication of the manifesto, there was sort of documentary evidence that this was, in fact, a political movement. Mm. And, and in fact, most of them were progressives and part of Red Vienna. So Schlick was an outlier. I'm not sure about Hans Hahn, but but you know Carnap for sure was, you know, was on the left, and you know they were they were excited about the reforms being made uh, in between the wars in Vienna in terms of workers' rights and housing and and workers' education. So Schlick was a little bit of an outlier, although one must say that uh, uniformly people say he was a wonderful man. So so Ramsey, for instance, uh, <laughs> thought thought he was very well. Ramsey says uh, of Schlick, he wasn't a very good philosopher, but he was a very nice man. <laughs> and harsh, uh, <laughs> yeah. he, he was clearly a very modest man, and he had diplomatic skills. So he was the perfect person to uh, control a bunch of often quite powerful egos. And Neurath is one of those powerful egos. We haven't begun to talk about Wittgenstein yet. So Wittgenstein doesn't come into the circle per se, but Wittgenstein is on um, an outer uh, ring of the circle. And it is slick um, mm. with, uh, as Cheryl will tell you, with uh, Ramsey's advice, who brings the ideas of Wittgenstein into the circle, but it's slick who meets with Wittgenstein and becomes the principal translator of Wittgenstein to the circle. It's an important contribution, isn't it, Cheryl? Yeah, so, so Wittgenstein was already on Schlick's radar in 1922, 23, perhaps. So Carnap went to America in 1923, I believe, uh, to meet with some mathematicians. And he got wind uh, in America that uh, there was a group of mathematically inclined philosophers in the UK, and the list was quite long. Russell was on it, Keynes was on it, Wittgenstein was on it. No, Wittgenstein wasn't singled out in any way, but Carnap uh, wrote to Reichenbach, and then before you know it, they were all writing to each other. There's this group of people in the UK who, who are doing the same kind of thing we are. And uh, Schlick eventually made contact with uh, Wittgenstein, uh, who was living in Austria at the time and had just published the Tractatus. And they really hit it off. They loved each other. They went on a two week kind of walking holiday in Italy uh, together. And uh, and I think Wittgenstein, uh, he wasn't he wasn't into group work uh, <laughs> at all. And I think one of the main reasons that Wittgenstein was so really uh, enmeshed in the Vienna Circle was because he really loved Schlick. But Wittgenstein was at many many meetings of the Circle right through, uh, it, so starting in the you know, about nineteen twenty seven right through to nineteen thirty four. He he was. You know, he, he he grumped about some of the members of the circle. He thought that they were plagiarizing his ideas. Twice he said Carnap was plagiarizing. 
driving his ideas. But that actually just shows you how close they were, right? How how close their ideas were. Wittgenstein, yeah. they were, you know, they were plagiarizing him. So, but Wittgenstein had this effect on Slick that he did to so many people. Slick was in total awe of Wittgenstein, and when he first goes to see him, his his wife said it was as if he were preparing to go on a holy pilgrimage, and. I mentioned he becomes the, the, the chief translator of Wittgenstein, but there are also examples of um, Slick having ideas, which are probably original ideas, which he, he actually gives to Wittgenstein. You know, he, he, he comes to believe he's incapable of original ideas and all the brilliant stuff uh, originates in, in, in Wittgenstein. So, um, and, and Cheryl said, yeah, he, he went to many, many groups, um, many, many meetings, but never once to the official uh, circle. So he ne- was never invited into the university itself. They would meet in various places. And famously, you know, sometimes Wittgenstein just refused to talk philosophy to them and he would turn his back and read poetry to them and they would just have to suffer in silence. It sounds awful. <laughs> Dave, was it, was it that Wittgenstein wasn't invited to the official meetings or did he insist that he met only in these in more, more informal settings so that no one could say of him that he was a part of the Vienna Circle. I it, was de- it was definitely the latter. It yes. was definitely the latter. So, <laughs> so, so Slick would have loved to have him in, come along and he refused to go. And initially, Carnap and Feigl would uh, join Slick. And then Carnap and Wittgenstein didn't get along. Um, Wittgenstein accused Carnap of having no nose for philosophy. And um, so eventually Carnap was basically dropped and Wittgenstein would meet with, with Slick and, and, and Feigl. But Slick, Slick remains the, the, the key conduit for Wittgenstein mm. to the circle. Just thinking about like, this. Uh, yes, Maria Carla, go on. I would like to ask, uh, to, to add something about the political involvement of this um, people and the political uh, nature of the of the, the philosophy uh, of the logic of logical empiricism I think there is a uh, I think that when Neuer at, uh, by way of self defense uh, said that uh, logical empiricism was not a political movement he uttered a half truth actually because uh, it is uh, certainly true, it's uh, historical, that uh, uh, all of those people, with the, except of, uh, the exception of Schlick, uh, were involved in, in uh, socio-political movements like the free thinkers, uh, just to mention one, and um, were pursuing progressive uh, uh, objectives uh, Various uh, kinds, uh, like uh, uh, like uh, above all, uh, the um, innovation of school. They wanted to have a more comprehensive school system, and they were extremely involved in this project. Um, And they were uh, pursuing other innovative uh, uh, ideas, but. This was on a personal reason. On the other hand, it is true that the scientific word conception, as it is uh, uh, contained in the manifesto, 
uh, was meant to have a social impact in the sense that uh, this, uh, um, this work of clarification of concepts uh, and of making them uh, a matter of uh, communication uh, among different people uh, was meant uh, to help people to be able to, for example, to decide what can be trusted and what cannot be trusted, things like this like that. But on the other hand, um, members of the Vienna Circle never thought that ethical and political issues uh, would be matter for philosophy, for philosophy. So they were out of philosophy, these topics. And after uh, the immigration, after philosophy of science moved uh, away of Europe, uh, especially to the US, uh, this, um, uh, this, uh, this uh, thing uh, became radicalized. There is a very nice book by Reich um, that uh, uh, is called uh, How the Cold War Transformed Philosophy of Science that describes this uh, process uh, in detail very, very well, namely that, uh, uh, they were completely distanced from ethical and political issues at that point and for a long time. Mm. Yeah, and refle reflecting on this question of what is it to make a philosophical contribution, which is quite an abstract question, but there was obviously this cult of genius worship at this time where Wittgenstein is worshipped to an absolutely absurd degree. And I think Ramsey is also quite worshipped. And there's this sense that unless you're this sort of young male aloof genius, you can't contribute anything. But what Schlick was doing was was making important contributions, was it not? I mean, if you if you knock heads together, if you organize groups like this, if you're a good collaborator, if you're bouncing ideas off other people. Schlick was doing the kind of thing that we should, in fact, uh, recognize as a contribution. Do you think, Cheryl? Yeah, I, so I, I, I'd like to quibble with just part of what you said. So, so the cult of genius really was about Wittgenstein, right? So the, the, the circle, the Vienna circle, mm. the Berlin circle, uh, you know, Ramsey, these people all thought that the way you make progress is to get together discuss, debate, move forward, build on what previous people have done. Uh, so, you know, Ramsey, so the circles, obviously, you know, that's the, that was their whole uh, reason for yeah. being. You know, Ram Ramsey was, you know, one man discipline, interdisciplinary department. He worked in economics and mathematics and philosophy, probability theory, all with other people. It really was Wittgenstein who had this idea that, that philosophy comes from you as an individual and actually it's it's a little bit um, unseemly if you if you build on the work of someone else and and this is why he never acknowledged or not not never but he rarely acknowledged uh, the contributions that other people had made to his thought and that encouraged uh, the cult of, of, of genius. Mm -hmm. It's an irony, isn't it, that you have this movement aimed at making philosophy more scientific, 
which should mean more collaborative, more about teamwork, etc. And then in the middle of it, you've got this character, Wittgenstein, who is the antithesis of all of that. Yeah, but it was only Wittgenstein. Yes, I shouldn't, I shouldn't group Ramsey with, with Wittgenstein in that respect. And, and it was doubly ironic because they were not unaware that there was this cult of genius around in the atmosphere. And um, for the Nazis, the cult of genius was, was quite a romantic idea. And some of the circle actually write about the cult of genius. Edgar Zilsel is, 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 is one such um, and critiques it. Um, and the idea that there's this special breed of human beings completely distinct from all other human beings with these special characteristics, um, that's critiqued by uh, one or two members of the circle. So it is ironic that, in fact, Wittgenstein was then clearly held up as an exemplar of this, of, of, of a type of genius. They were in the grip of something they could themselves critique in other people. Cheryl? So, so not everyone in the Vienna and Berlin circles thought that Wittgenstein was so wonderful. Carnap, for instance, was quite skeptical uh, uh, about him as a person and his abilities. Uh, Ramsey was the person closest <coughs> to Wittgenstein, but, but really thought that his great work at the time, the Tractatus, was deeply flawed and spent the last year of his life hammering away at it and really making Wittgenstein give it up. So it, it wasn't that everyone was taken by him, but Schlick was, I think, and Weissman, uh, I'm sure there are others. So Maria Carla, tell us about the Berlin circle, which has been mentioned, you know, this other circle over in Berlin, interacting with the Vienna circle. How, how did that work? Well, uh, the Berlin Society, it was called the Berlin Society for Empirical Philosophy. Uh, that was a kind of twin, twin group, sharing uh, basic uh, tenets, uh, the Vienna group, what we already mentioned. Um, but not all of them. In particular, Hans Reichenbach was uh, very critical of the, the approach that uh, was uh, dominant in Vienna. Um, he was uh, especially critical of the theory of meaning, uh, based on the criterion of verification. And um, was not only critical of the principle of verifiability, but also of the weaker uh, idea of partial definitions that was uh, put forward by Carnap later around the uh, uh, 46, if, if I'm not, um, if I'm not, uh, 36, uh, sorry. Um, testability meaning. Um, why was he so critical about that? Because he, he thought that they completely overlooked the notion of probability. Uh, he used to say that uh, uh, the theory of knowledge is a theory of prediction, but since predictions about the future are uncertain, they are not certain, they don't, uh, they cannot be, um, they, they, can, they cannot be uh, said to be true, uh, 
In fact, he used also to say that truth is a phantom, an unrealizable phantom. So what do we need? We need probability. And um, he um, uh, developed uh, uh, a whole epistemology that is based on probability. Right, and, and, yeah, and Cheryl, um, I wanted to ask about Ramsey. So we talk about biographers needing to choose their subjects carefully, and, and Ramsey is the one for you that you've, you've dedicated years of your life to. How did the Vienna Circle enter into Frank Ramsey's life? Ramsey translated the Tractatus, and so uh, he was immediately on the radar of the Vienna Circle. Uh, and so that was 1922, the Tractatus was published. 1923, Ramsey wrote a really important critical notice of it. And he actually was uh, in 1924 in Vienna to be psychoanalyzed along with many, many of his compatriots uh, by, by the Freud or Freud students. And, and in 1924, when he spent this six months in Vienna, he uh, met Schlick, uh, actually at Wittgenstein's sister's uh, very uh, elaborate fancy house uh, at a dinner party. Uh, he met Hans Hahn, and immediately they, uh, you know, they they had much uh, to talk about because they were all very mathematically inclined uh, philosophers. And at the time, Ramsey was finishing his undergraduate thesis which was trying to repair a hole in Russell and Whitehead's Principia Mathematica. And the circle at that time was very, very uh, engaged with Russell's work. So there, there was a, a personal and intellectual connection um, right off the bat. And as I say, Ramsey really liked Schlick, invited him in 1927 to come to Cambridge and give a talk at the Moral Sciences Club. Uh, but Ramsey was deeply skeptical of the project of finding a common language uh, for all of knowledge and for reducing it really to, uh, you know, experience or certainty. So uh, as Maria Carla was saying, Reichenbach focused on probability. The same holds for Ramsey. He focused on partial belief, not the kind of full belief that this uh, locked in uh, theory of knowledge that Wittgenstein and the Vienna Circle were presenting. So the, the Berlin Circle and Ramsey have in common this feeling that the Vienna Circle neglects probability and that we need to be talking not about you know, verifying statements as such, but, but assigning probabilities. Yes, them. but they, they had different uh, uh, ideas of what probability, how probability mm. should be conceived. Because, uh, right. Because Reichenbach uh, upheld a frequency view of probability, uh, while Ramsey was, was a subjectivist. But the, they had something in common, namely they were both Bayesians. That, that disagreement over what probability is, it persists to this day, doesn't it, really? I mean, even now you have people who think of probability as a subjective phenomenon in the tradition of Ramsey and those who think it's all about you know, relative frequencies over the long run in the tradition of Reichenbach. Well, I think that, uh, um, yeah, you, you are right. Uh, 
to say that uh, now uh, subjectivism is more popular than the frequency view, but the frequency uh, theory of probability is not dead at all. It is still very, um, very important, and it, it is uh, um, still the, I think, uh, probably the dominant uh, uh, theory of or the the dominant interpretations among physicists, among uh, genetists, those people among those people who study uh, mass phenomena. But probably, let me add that uh, uh, if we are talking about the frequency theory of probability, uh, now the more uh, popular or the more uh, the the version of it that that gains more consensus is certainly not Reichenbach's batterica commissions. He was also a member of the Berlin Circle, I believe. Cheryl? And it should also be said that, you know, Ramsey was really clear that the frequency theory of probability was probably the most appropriate, uh, i.e. right theory of probability for physics and for some other sciences. It's just that when you uh, are thinking about how to measure uh, human, partial human belief and and our uncertainty, then you had to move to a subjectivist account of probability. Mm. But now we're getting into some very deep weeds in probability. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, David, let's get out of the weeds and uh, talk about Popper. You mentioned Popper as another subject that fascinates you and another one of these characters on the edge of the Vienna circle. Was he a friend or an enemy? He was an enemy but not as much as the, of an enemy as he would like everyone to believe. So basically, the things that interested Popper interested the circle. Interested in the circle. So he, he called himself the official opposition to the circle. He would have loved to have been a member of the circle, but in one talk, he was extremely rude about Wittgenstein. And Slick never forgave him. And so the invitation never arrived. The invitation uh, to come to the circle was Slick's to give and Slick's to withhold. And so Popper never became a member of the circle. But he was fascinated by all the things that the circle was interested in. And some of the um, areas that um, Maria Carla and Cheryl have been talking about, he was interested in probability and induction and so on. He claimed that... Um, the distinction that most intrigued him was not the distinction that uh, intrigued the circle, but that between what was meaningful and what was meaningless, with the circle condemning as meaningless anything that was not verifiable or analytically true. Uh, Popper said that was a trivial issue. What interested him was the difference between science and not science. What should count as science and what shouldn't count as science? And it's here that he comes up with his famous falsifiability principle, that something is only scientific if it's capable of being falsified. Um, so it's different, different from being verified. So um, the statement, all swans are white, however many white swans you see, 
you can never prove that all swans are white because there might be a black swan in the next pond just around the corner. But what you can prove if you see one black swan is that not all swans are white. So it's falsifiable, it's not verifiable. And that was his demarcation. And then the question was how you applied that. We've talked about psychoanalysis. The circle discussed psychoanalysis quite a lot because obviously Vienna was the home of Freud. It was where you, if you wanted to be psychoanalyzed, Vienna was where you went. It would be crazy to go to Vienna, not um, sample, uh, you know, being psychoanalyzed. So uh, Ramsey was one of the people who got psychoanalyzed, but many others did too in Vienna from people from outside town. But an issue for the circle was, did psychoanalysis count as a science? And that was something they argued about. And Slick was very favorable towards psychoanalysis, but others were more skeptical that it was in fact scientific. I love that idea of you know, going to Vienna for the psychoanalysis and staying around for debate about whether psychoanalysis <laughs> is scientific or not. So please keep your questions coming in the Q&A box if you have any, and we'll turn to them in a moment. But uh, Dave, I wanted to ask you about the, the later parts of your book, essentially why the Vienna Circle fell apart and what happened to them. We've talked about Schlick, who was murdered, and about Neurath, who fled in a boat. Why did the circle dissolve? Well, it was closed down. So the Austro-Fascists take over in 1934. The Ernst Mach Society, which is the public face of the Vienna Circle, which is a society in which there are lectures, adult education lectures, many given by circle members, that's closed down. Uh, it becomes very difficult to meet. It falters, stumbles on for a couple of years till Slick's murder. Slick's murder, as you would expect, really concentrates minds. And at that time, people, almost all the circle, decide that now might be the time to leave. One or two of them have already gone. Feigl, for example, is one of the first to leave. Feigl leaves in 1931. But others now plot their escape. Where do they go? They go primarily to the US and the UK. Most to the US, but some to the UK. Um, Popper escapes via the UK and ends up in New Zealand, where he spends the war years and he writes his uh, famous book, uh, The Open Society and Its Enemies, in New Zealand. He describes it as his war effort. Um, but the rest of them go to the US and UK. Um, they don't all go to, you know, you might expect they all go to Harvard and Yale, but but um, uh, some of them go to less prestigious universities. And actually, I think those universities can't quite believe that, as it were, they can pick these um, fantastic mm. academics um, and add them to their faculty. Um, but the UK, Weissman, who's an important member of the circle, Friedrich Weissman, um, who's sort of dominated by Wittgenstein, he comes to the UK. An interesting woman called uh, Rose Rand comes to the UK. Neurath um, comes, but then dies pretty much after, uh, as soon as the war is ended. Um, Popper ends up in the UK after New Zealand, but most of the rest of them go to the US. And, and they completely change... That's... that's that's wrong. It's not that they completely changed the character of philosophy in the United States, but they uh, they meld with the homegrown American pragmatists, and together these two movements really determine the shape of analytic philosophy until until now. Um, 
And so it was a, it was a, the immigration was massively important for the state of philosophy in let's just call it Anglo-American philosophy, but also it was uh, a disaster for Germany and Austria. So I, I sometimes say that, you know, Germany and Austria lost more than the war. They, they literally lost their brains because everyone left uh, uh, who could leave. Some people were murdered, not like Schlick, but, you know, in concentration mm. camps. And, uh, and, you know, I think Germany and Austria are still... Are, are still recovering from that uh, this, these many, many decades later. Mm. Yeah. So, so of, of the circle, um, Victor Kraft is the uh, one of only two who is able to stay in Austria during the war years. And then Slick's murderer, Nell Book, is released in, I think, 1940. And the rest of the circle have, have, have gone. They were um, not just logical empiricists, but as we've explained, most of them were socialist. Over half of them were Jewish. Even the ones who didn't consider themselves Jewish, like Popper, found that, in fact, um, in the eyes of the Nazis, they were. Um, and so um, they all had to go out. The, the least political one of all of them was Gödel, who, who seems to be sort of strangely... We haven't even discussed Kurt Gödel, but but you know the greatest logician of the 20th century was a member of the circle, mm -hmm. and he eventually leaves in 1940. But you know he's not Jewish, he's not very political. He possibly, you know, could have stayed, and he seemed extraordinarily oblivious to what's going on. He he said to one of the Jewish members of the circle who he bumped into in America in, 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 shortly after war began. He said, what brings you to America, he said to the, to, to the professor. Uh, uh, but Gödel, Gödel gets out as well and goes to the Institute of Advanced Study, where he becomes very friendly with Einstein, and they, they walk to the Institute together every day um, for, for many years. And you mentioned also Rose Rand there. It, it's very easy to think of the Vienna Circle as uh, entirely a group of men. What, would, what were the contributions of women to, to the circle? Well, Rose Rand, um, <laughs> rather unfortunately, um, acted as secretary for some of the time. And so we have some of the minutes of the circle, which Rose Rand made. There were several female members of the circle who um, often get, you know, forgotten about and they, they shouldn't. I mean, it was interesting that um, how many members there were and... University of Vienna had lots of, um, not lots, but there were female undergraduates and there were at least four female members of, 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 of the circle. Um, they had quite similar backgrounds that I think they were, if all four of them were a sort of Jewish, bourgeois, secular backgrounds um, of the kind of background where the, the parents encouraged the, the, the the girls to have a good education. Um, and Rose Rand was, the, was probably the most prominent of them. She had a very tragic life, didn't really find an academic home and it was constantly kind of short of money. And actually there's an interesting story, which is Wittgenstein gives her money without letting her know, um, uses an organization, a refugee organization in the UK 
to, to pass her some money. Um, but she has a desperately sad life and never receives the due that she deserves, really. Mm. One might also say um, that the that the Vienna and Berlin Circle members who went to the UK on the whole did not thrive the way they, those who went to America thrived. So Weissman also, you know, he was never fully appreciated. You know, I think even Neurath was never fully appreciated. Whereas, you know, as Dave says in, in America, you know, uh, there was a kind of organized uh, campaign to get uh, these people into universities. You know, some, some, sometimes it was University of Minnesota or the University of, you know, Illinois, but they thrived there and uh, they, they rose quickly to the top of the profession. Now, you might say, well, maybe, maybe philosophers in America weren't as good as philosophers in England, but you might also say that, you know, there, there was, there was some, yeah, yeah, you might also say that the Brits were a little bit, looked down their nose a bit at them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to be fair to um, Britain, uh, the, the one reason why Weissman didn't thrive at all is because he found himself bullied by Wittgenstein. Yes. And he arrives in Cambridge and Wittgenstein refuses to teach the same subjects that Weissman is teaching. And Weissman has to basically flee to Oxford. Um, Neurath is a different case. He dies in 46, I think. So he barely has a post-World War II academic career. Rose Rand definitely struggles. And the one exception to this is Karl Popper. Um, I've got, well, apart from Wittgenstein, who's a very established figure and, and, and stays in the UK, but Karl Popper, he doesn't get the Oxbridge chair that he so coveted, but nonetheless, he becomes Sir Karl Popper. Uh, he, he becomes an establishment figure, highly respected in the UK. So he is the one figure from the circle who does climb the academic greasy pole successfully. Maria Carla, what do you think the, the Vienna Circle's long-term legacy has been for philosophy of science as it is now? Well, uh, this is a, a very difficult question in the first place because uh, actually uh, logical empiricism um, has been... Uh, um, a very uh, complex and uh, diversified, articulated movement, much more than we had been thinking for a long time after, uh, for instance, uh, Ayer's uh, book uh, or other um, uh, versions of logical empiricism. So, um, Many um, features uh, of today's philosophy of science can actually be uh, seen as being present, although in an embryonic uh, uh, stage in one or the other of the members of the Vienna Circle. But anyway, I think that uh, today's philosophy of science uh, is the, the product of two different uh, tendencies that developed uh, in the 60s. One is the well-known um, uh, uh, 
approach that was developed by Kuhn, Lakatos, Kajerabel, and so on, which is often called post-positivism, which uh, uh, promoted a more uh, historical approach, to put it very simply. And uh, the other uh, tendency, which is uh, often not mentioned, is that a tendency that developed also in the 60s and whose uh, main uh, uh, proponent was Patrick Supis, uh, which, um, uh, whose approach um, uh, moved towards uh, a, a more pluralistic uh, uh, philosophy of science. A different way of looking at scientific theories that superseded completely the view of theories uh, as nets floating on the plane of observation that had been coined by Carl uh, Gustav Hempel, and also uh, superseded the distinction between a context of discovery and the context of justification, opening philosophy of science to all that regards experimentation and observation. And so, um, also opening philosophy of science also to a bunch of statistical methodologies that uh, um, are uh, used for the formation of empirical data. Um, I think uh, that uh, philosophy of science today is more pluralistic and also uh, puts at the center uh, probability. So in, in that respect, I think that uh, the Berlin Circle uh, survived in a way better than okay. the yeah. Vienna Circle. So you're, you're putting in a bit for the, for the Berlin Circle there. Okay, so we've got uh, 12 minutes and 10 questions. So let's see if we can, can give concise answers to some of these questions. Um, it's a good one for Cheryl here. It'd be interesting to know more about the merging or encounter between the Vienna Circles, uh, migrants, and the pragmatists in the US as contributing to analytic philosophy's developments. You've written so much about, about both. So tell us how those groups interacted. First, there was real interaction between Dewey, who was at the time like the top you know, American philosopher. He was kind of like, you know, America's Wittgenstein. Um, and, uh, and, and Norvath especially. So Norvath went to New York and tried to persuade Dewey that really, you know, he should be part of uh, the unified uh, movement, the unified science movement. And in fact, Dewey wrote one of the volumes in the Encyclopedia of Unified Science on theory of value. And for a while, you know, Dewey thought, yeah, you know, we're all empiricists, we're interested in the practical, but then Dewey decided that, you know, they, they were too, the, the logical empiricists were reductionists and the pragmatists were not reductionists. And that was true. And, and then just, just to be very concise, really what happened is that the Vienna Circle lost their reductionist uh, tendencies as the years went by, be, because you can't reduce even all of science to uh, observation statements, scientific laws and dispositional terms just can't be crammed into that model. So the Vienna Circle in America 
drifted closer to the pragmatists. And you have people like Philip Frank saying in the 1950s, look, we were always pragmatists. This is what we were always on about. And was, well, not quite, but it's good that you are now. <laughs> yeah, fascinating issue. So the question here for you, Dave, how would you assess Schlick's place in the reception and legacy of the circle, given his continuous and unbalanced debates with Norat and his extreme and spiritual relation to Wittgenstein? And there's a follow-up saying, do you think that some other members of the circle like uh, Hahn and Neurath and Frank became disappointed by Schlick's leadership of the circle and the focus on Wittgenstein? Um, Neurath definitely fell out with Schlick uh, for lots of reasons, some of which we've discussed, different politics, uh, different approach to what the circle should be doing and Slick actually didn't rate Neurat as a philosopher, and that became clear when he wouldn't include Neurat in one of the book series of The Circle. Uh, how do I rate Slick's legacy? Well, I don't know how important he was as, as philosopher, but he was, he was the conductor. He was the conductor of the group. He was the conductor of the orchestra. And there would have been no orchestra without the conductor. So he was absolutely vital um, to the group. He was vital to keep these egos in check. Uh, he was there at the right time to bring all these people together. They, uh, they were often presented as a homogenous group. They had very different ideas on lots of things. You know, even about mathematics, for example, where Gödel is a Platonist and uh, a, a completely different approach to the foundations of mathematics to all the others. Slick was able to keep all these people together. So his legacy is the legacy of, of the conductor, basically. And without him, we wouldn't have the circle. I like this idea that you know, contributions to philosophy don't have to take the form of lone feats of genius, but can be these conductor roles. I mean, maybe I'm contributing to philosophy right now by bringing together this fantastic circle of panellists. So here's a question for you, Cheryl. Is there an irony that the statement, if it can't be verified, it has no value, is itself not verifiable? I suppose more than, a, more than an irony, a serious problem for the whole programme. It's a serious problem for the whole programme. And, you know, as I said, there were, there were there was a whole cluster of... Uh, of statements that aren't verifiable in that initial way that the the circle and Wittgenstein and the Tractatus required. And, uh, you know, we've been talking about the Vienna Circle at a very particular time, really, you know, kind of between the wars. And, uh, and you know, they started to address these, uh, these really serious problems within their position. And, and I, I think that's why they drifted closer to American pragmatism because the American pragmatists never said anything like, you know, well, okay, but on their considered judgment wasn't that a meaningful statement has to be, has to bottom out in, you know, like physical experience. And so, you know, they could have uh, a theory of value where you have to take experience seriously, but experience is the experience that you and I have of say injustice Whereas that didn't hold, uh, that was not on for the early Vienna circle, right? 
so they they became less strict, more liberal, uh, you know, after the Second World War. But yes, for sure, uh, their initial position had all sorts of uh, problems, like the one this, the questioner raises. <laughs> And a question for you, David, what about biology in the circle? Seems biology was ignored or downplayed, even though there was an important institute for experimental biology in Vienna. Yes, there are a few gaps. Biology is one of them. Um, there's a strange inclusion. So you would expect biology to, to, to be much more um, centre, have a much more centre role than it does. Um, one of the things that's intriguing about the circle is how, despite their attitude to politics and to ethics, and this is something we haven't discussed, how nonetheless they are so political and have strong ethical views. This is a group of people who have determined that ethical statements and normative statements of all kinds, aesthetic statements, are meaningless because they are neither true by definition, nor can you verify them, nor can you test whether they are true in the real world. And yet they were very politically engaged people. So there were some strange gaps. Biology is one of them. They, 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 there isn't much talk of biology in the circle. And then there were these um, strange additions, which they don't necessarily talk about in circle meetings, but some of them are very political. We sport, we've talked about Neurath, Carnap as well. They have a strong political program. And the question is, well, how on earth do you verify that with um, the verification principle? And uh, that's something that they all struggle with. And the role of ethics um, is something that is, that is talked about. In what way can you meaningfully, meaningfully say this is something you ought to do. Um, we ought to have this program for the city of Vienna. How does that make sense, given that normative statements are meaningless? Thanks. We've got time for one more question, which I'm going to put to all of you and hopefully get, get quick answers from all of you. Are there any equivalent groups to the Vienna or Berlin circles today, in particular with respect to the idea that philosophy or philosophy of science is a collaborative project rather than a lone wolf genius discipline. Maria Carla? Well, there are a number of uh, uh, centers where philosophy of science is done in this or this other way. For instance, uh, there is this project of uh, formal epistemology, which uh, I regard as uh, uh, the the um, as having uh, uh, catch up with uh, uh, the legacy of Carnap. Uh, there is a big center in Munich for that, but there are also other centers. Um, I think that uh, philosophy of science today. Um, in certain areas, because now, today, there is no philosophy of science in itself. There are several philosophies of science, of sciences, philosophy of physics, philosophy of medicine, philosophy of... The field is fragmented. And so on and so forth. And 
it is true that in certain of these areas, um, philosophy of science is not done by a single person, but uh, by a group, groups of people, clusters of people. So it depends really on what field we are talking about. Yeah. What do you think, Cheryl? No, I think where Carla is right that formal epistemology is kind of the legacy of uh, of the Vienna Circle, and you know, I, my sense is that they think of themselves as engaging in a you know kind of a group project, going you know, to make progress. <laughs> what do you think, Dave? No, there's nothing like the Vienna Circle. It no. arose in a particular time and a place with a particular political and social background and context, and it would be almost impossible to reproduce today. Well, in that sense, uh, I agree completely. Yeah. Taking that sense, I agree. Yeah, so nothing quite like it. Still, I wonder if <laughs> you know, one of the main contributions it's made to the philosophy is this idea that philosophy can be a collaborative discipline. It can resemble science in being the sort of thing that is done by teams lab lab like groups if, if that's right that's a very important idea i think that, that i much prefer to the lone genius coming out with little aphorisms model of philosophy yes but they weren't the only ones who had this idea right i mean in you know the whole of mm. europe was covered in these little circles with you know stamatishes and like and and then also the american pragmatists, you know, thought that, uh, you know, inquiry was everything and that philosophers were engaged in a community, you know, a community-wide inquiry. So it wasn't, it was a time in which this idea flourished. Yeah. Okay, that's all we've got time for. Thanks very much to all of you who attended. Thanks very much for your questions. And of course, thank you to our panelists, Dave Esmonds, uh, Cheryl Misak and Maria Carla Galavotti for Fantastic discussion and fantastic answers to those questions. Thanks very Thank much. You.